We are taking some time here at the end of the year to talk about our three loves on the wall over there. And uh, we're spending a lot of time actually on We Love God Together, and we're going to continue to do that. We've talked about Bible reading, we've talked about giving, we've talked about corporate worship. Uh, and we're going to enter a series here, and we're going to talk about prayer and what that means to us uh, here in this church. But not prayer privately, it's prayer corporately that we're going to actually talk about praying uh, together. And I've entitled the message this morning, The Unbelievable Church Prayer Meeting. The context of this passage is there is a very, very bad man named Herod, and he was Herod Agrippa I. Uh, He was the grandson of Herod the Great, which if you're familiar with the New Testament, that is the guy who ordered the Bethlehem children to be murdered. This is the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded, so it's a murderous mob of men. And he was raised and educated in Rome, but he was always on shaky ground with Rome. He wasn't the best dude. He ran up numerous debts. He left his creditors behind him. He said nasty things about the emperor Tiberius, and so Tiberius threw him in prison. Uh, When he was released, though, they gave him the rulership of northern Palestine, And he had the largest territory of Palestine since Herod the Great, nearly 50 years earlier. Well, what he wanted to do was kind of change his reputation a little bit, uh, at least with Rome, and he wanted to be on good standing with Rome. And so it was really important that when Rome gave him the responsibility of uh, governorship, that he would actually govern well, and that there wouldn't be an uprising. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to keep the people happy, right? Because if the Jews weren't happy, then Rome wasn't happy. So he was trying to gain favor, especially with the Jewish religious elite, and we see in the very first part of this chapter that he has James murdered. This is the first, like, real, uh, you know, one of the people that walked with the Lord, and now he is dead. Uh, It's kind of of said in one verse, but it's pretty much a shock to the Christian system, okay? And then he saw how much people loved it. And he said, well, I'm going to do the same thing to Peter. And so he arrests Peter. And he says, you know, I'm, not, I'm going to do this when, you know, impeachment is not taking over the news, so to speak, right? I'm going to figure out when I'm going to say it so that everybody's paying attention. So during the Feast of Unleavened Bread after Passover, all the Jews are busy celebrating the feast. They're not really watching CNN. But the moment the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over, he's like, we're going to kill this Peter guy. So he arrests him and throws him uh, into jail. Now, it's very important that if you remember, you know, James getting murdered, this could echo back to, remember James and John were the one that went to Jesus and said, hey, uh, we would like uh, to have sit with you on the throne, right? We want to share in that. We want to sit on the throne. And Jesus said, hey, there's no glory apart from suffering. He says, are you guys really able to drink of the cup that it's really going to take to like journey with me and, and uh be alongside me and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they're like, oh, we can handle it. (laughs) Jesus gave them a throne, and they will sit on the 12 thrones in heaven, but before that, he's going to die by the sword. So James is killed. John later becomes an exile on the Isle of Patmos, uh, and they actually drank of the cup of suffering that would come before the cup of glory. Why would the Jews be happy? I mean, they've already killed Jesus, so why would they be happy that James and Peter are killed? If you look back to Acts 11, there might be some clues there. 
Acts 11 is the first time Peter really gets the vision that the gospel is not just for one ethnic group. That perhaps the gospel is for all. And then we actually see the church at Antioch and we see this multi-ethnic expression as people are not just sharing the gospel with just the Jews, right? And so there could be a little hint of race and stuff in here, right? Reread your Bible again for the first time. And there's this reaction saying, hey, we better stop this thing because this is a force that we don't want to really reckon with. Let's shut down the leadership of it. So he imprisons Peter, and he has four squads take turns guarding him. Because Peter in Acts 5 had already escaped from prison one time. This guy was good, okay? we got to make sure he doesn't escape. If you actually kind of Google this thing, you can actually see where he was in prison. They think it's on the corner of the temple. It was called the Tower of Antonia. And this is where the Roman troops were barracks. So the troops, these were their barracks. And on the corner, you see these big, tall pillars. And Peter's in one of those big, tall uh, corner towers on the northeastern corner of the temple. And the Bible says in verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the praying church. It's really popular these days to diss the church, but I just want to keep saying over and over again, the church is God's most favorite thing in the world. It is the bride of Christ, and though it might be ugly, you might be a jilted lover, the church is where God's executing his plan for the nations. He loves it, and he died for it, and it's the most powerful movement in world history. Why? Because this is God's deal. The church is God's deal. It's his plan. It's what he's about. And this church, though, is, we see here, brought to their knees. Can I ask you this? What would it take to bring providence to its knees? Well, we've had tragedy, we've had death, sickness, uh, building programs. You know, pastors are really good at like when the building program comes, that's when prayer becomes preached about and talked about. You know why? Because that's when pastors are freaked out. Because they got to figure out how to get the money out of those pockets into a building that's, you know, most people aren't excited about buildings. It's the one time pastors are really freaked out. We prayed for this building. Have we called more 24-hour prayer meetings since we moved in to like pray for something else that we need God to do? When do you really feel like you need God, where he's not really living up to your expectations? Or maybe that's, do we even live a life that we think needs God to show up? Are we on the frontier edge of a faith-filled life where God has to intervene or it won't work? I, we have this quote in the staff wing that the pinnacle of Christian leadership is when you climb up on a bloody cross and you take responsibility for the brokenness in your neighborhood. And I've realized, in a, and I was in a podcast this week, and I said, you know, a culture of wealth, you don't have to take responsibility for the brokenness in your neighborhood. It's not my problem. I didn't create it. But true Christians, we climb up on that bloody cross. Like Jesus climbed up on that bloody cross and he took responsibility for the brokenness in his neighborhood. So we can sit here all day and say, well, what's happening at hell? It's not my deal. Would to God we all bled with Ms. Jefferson and said, we're going to take responsibility for the schools in our neighborhood and the fact that they've lacked the resources and they've lacked the, uh, everything else that other schools have gotten. And we're going to sit there and figure out how can we do that? Well, you don't have to do that. But I say when you start entering into public education in our neighborhood, you need God to show up. Like the system is so jacked up. And we are prone to wander. I was with, having breakfast with a friend this week. 
and he's a business owner, and he just settled a lawsuit. And he said, Jason, ever since the lawsuit was settled, my prayer life has evaporated. You've never been sued. You know what it's like to pray because you can't control it anymore. And every time you even talk about it, it's going to cost you 250 bucks an hour to your attorney, right? You need God to show up because that thing could be 25 grand, that thing could be 100 grand, that thing could be half a million dollars, it could be more. It's almost as if God has to wait until our backs are against the wall before we actually become praying Christians. I, I like that narrative of that most of us walk out in life and using our 20s and 30s, we engage on this hero's journey. This is how we're going to change the world. This is what we're going to do. This is the business we're going to build. This is the career I'm going to get. This is my degree. And then somewhere in your late 30s to early 40s, you encounter the, what's called the crisis of limitations. You ain't going to plant that flag. That relationship didn't work out. That job, your career, you don't like it, right? And you face this, and you feel like you're running through mud, and then you have a chance. Once you realize you, you can't fix it anymore, you either pick up another hero's journey and you burn through the wives and you burn through the people and you burn through the businesses because you just got to make that thing work or you just surrender. And you say, you know what, God, do with me what you really want me to do. When I look at our church, sometimes I feel like we're in the most dangerous time spiritually in our history. I was in a counseling session and Josh Larson was there and he said, we did have a wartime feeling in this church. Like, I mean, we didn't know if we were going to survive, and we didn't know if we could make the multi-ethnic thing work, and we didn't know we could figure out the journey in the neighborhood, and we had so many stuff that we had to learn, and there were days we just didn't wonder, does this whole experiment failed? But now it feels like the last two years it's moved over to peacetime. It's comfortable, folks. We have heat, right? We have space. There's no line at the restrooms anymore. There's... Things are happening and people are getting out of poverty. And I go, are we going to, I mean, it, the moment we stop getting on our faces, God will just take his hand and slowly lift it off and people won't even notice. But you know what? Everything becomes harder. Everything becomes harder. Because now we actually are exposed for the weak people we actually are. I think if we looked outside of ourselves, you don't have to look very far in our city to say we need God to show up and God's spirit to stir our hearts and our community. So they call this prayer meeting. Let's go to the prayer meeting. So it's in a gated community. It's at Mary's house, wealthy woman. Um, her son is John Mark. And they are gathered as a group in a home prayer meeting in the Jerusalem church. And can you imagine the prayers? Can you, can you put yourself in the living room and realize that uh, your, your pastor, let's listen to say Josh is chair of the elders. Okay, Josh is in prison and he's supposed to be executed the following morning. The urgency and intensity in that living room. And you can't, you can't change it, right? CNN at that point is not on your side. So you can't call the news. You can't call the governor to get a pardon. That guy's going down in 12 hours. And as far as we know, Peter's married. Okay, so now let's put Katie in that living room. What does that feel like as her husband's going to get his head cut off in 12 hours? Can you feel the anxiety and the tears and the fear? And you ain't going to go visit because you walk into that complex, even if they let you in, right? And now they know you're part of that band as well, and there's a, there's a death sentence on your head. This is probably the most real prayer meeting you'll ever find. 
Like, actually, you have, something has to happen because it's all out of your control. And if your prayers don't get answered, somebody dies and you have 12 hours. Well, you, you can bind a Christian in whatever chains you want, but you cannot lock prayer up. And we, prayer, prayer is not the last resort. It's got to be actually the first thing that we think about. Carl Barth said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. It's real, these words are really popular in our culture right now. Uprising, resist, right? And there, there's a lot of good energy behind some of those movements and some toxic energy. But there is no greater uprising and there's no greater resistance than when you actually bring your requests in front of the great high priest and lay them at his feet and say, we need you down here. There is no more powerful way to resist in our culture than prayer. Do you believe that? The church has always done it. And I just want to do a little bit of a commercial here. The church has always prayed for prisoners. And when we say that in the church today, the church has become so sanitized that the only thing we think about when it says, remember those in prison, are those who are incarcerated for their faith abroad. And we have a Sunday for the persecuted church, and we should. Or thanks to Brian Stevenson and Just Mercy, now we think, yeah, there's some of those dudes inside that shouldn't be there. They're wrongly convicted. Lord, let's pray for the innocent ones. But folks, I've been to a lot of prisons in this state, and there's some bad boys by their own admission. And we ought to pray for them too. Why does it say remember those in prison? Why? Because they're the easiest to forget. Did anybody wake up this morning and wonder what it's like to have breakfast in Sterling Correctional Facility? No, there's 2,000 guys in there, though they, they know what it's like. They don't get the mail. They don't get the visits. Hebrews says, remember those who are in bonds as though you were bound with them. So the church has always prayed for the incarcerated. And then in verse 6, the prayer reaches the throne of heaven. An angel is dispensed to Peter's cell. And here is Peter sleeping in a cell. Would you sleep? the night before your execution. Okay, you got one guy chained to your right wrist and another guy chained to your left wrist. And you're laying there and Peter's sleeping. It could be that, you know, the Lord promised him you're going to live to an old age. And so Peter's sitting there going, God's going to show up because <laughs> I ain't old yet. At least I don't think so, right? But Peter sleeps. We have no even record that Peter himself prayed, although I'm sure he did. I imagine there was a conversation with the Lord that was pretty real. I'm not sure what his faith was like. I don't think it's as strong as we probably may think in this moment. And then God shows up at the last minute. Do you ever wonder why he does that? I mean, why can't we plan it? I mean, it was already said this morning, you know, as, as Jeff told Courtney, like, God's never late, but he's rarely early. That drives me crazy, right? I'm like, why? Tom, Thomas Watson said this, it is prayer that fetched the angel. Do you believe that when you pray, it's fetching the angels? Right? That the angels are up there and they're waiting to be fetched. And if you pray, the, the angel comes down. So this light comes into the cell. Brilliant light. Peter doesn't wake up. 
I can identify. <laughs> the angel comes into the cell. He doesn't wake up. I mean, he's probably got the CPAP machine at full roar, right? The angel, it says, has to strike him on the side, right? And finally he wakes up, and then his chains fall off, and he looks up, and he's like, get dressed. Get your shoes on. Get your clothes on. Right now there's a guy standing here, and there's a guy standing here. Any little flannel graph stories you've read or Bible stories where they're all sleeping on the floor, those guys are standing up. And he's like putting on his coat and looking at the guys, right? And he's like, don't, don't forget your jacket, puts it on. And then all of a sudden, like, the door opens. And Peter starts walking out the door. And then the whole prison gate opens up. Because there's two guards out there too, the Bible says, right? And he walks right past them like, you know, I mean, it is not registering what's happening to those men. And the Bible says that Peter thought he was seeing a vision. <laughs> Even Peter doesn't actually believe what's happening. Even though if he was trusting that God had the promise he'd live to an old age, he himself doesn't really believe it. And finally, when he gets out on the street and the angel finally takes off, and Peter goes, now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting. He's like, Wow! I'm, I'm no longer in chains. I'm out of prison. And he goes to find the prayer meeting. He runs up to the gated community. He rings the bell. The servant girl named Rhoda, you know, pushes the nest monitor and looks out, can't quite make out who it is. So she runs outside the house, runs out to the gate, and she sees Peter. And what does she do? And she runs back into the house and doesn't open the gate. We all know this woman, don't we? <laughs> right? This is the one on YouTube, like, drops the engagement ring into the river, you know, because she's so excited. That's this. We know this Enneagram number, right? We know this person. And she runs in and she's like, it's Peter. He's outside. She did not open the gate, it says. And the church, okay, they're in the living room. They're crying around Katie, right? And all of a sudden they look up their eyes and they hear what she says. And they say, you're out of your mind. Let's go back to praying that God would deliver Peter from prison. <laughs> you get that? This is so comforting to me, friends, right? That they're sitting there, God answers the prayer, and they accuse her of being literally crazy. And they go back to praying. They go back to praying. And I can hear the prayers. God, you said no weapon formed against us would prosper, right? You said where two or three are gathered, you'd be in the midst. God, you said you know the plans you have for us and that, you know, Peter shouldn't die. And they go to praying again. Well, if prayer fetches the angel, okay, the angel has already done, done his job. He's heading back up to heaven. It's halfway up. And all of a sudden, another order comes down. I mean, I, I'm picturing like a Jim Carrey movie. You know, Jim Carrey's the angel is like, hey, hey, they want you back down there. They want you to get Peter out of prison. And Jim Carrey's like, what? You know, like, I just did that thing. He's got whiplash, right? So she insists and she insists and then she insists. And they're like, Rhoda, 
He literally says, that's probably just his angel. Now, it just took me a while to think about this, okay? Okay, so if you're saying it's probably his angel, and if I'm hearing the leader of the prayer meeting say that, I'm probably going to run out there and look at the angel, right? I mean, that's what I'm like, let's go see what this angel is like. But just think through logic of what they're saying. When, when do you see someone's angel in Scripture? When they dead, right? There's, first of all, they said she's crazy. Secondly, they said, okay, we're putting the pieces together here. If that's really what you think it is, he's probably already died, and that's his spirit coming back and knocking on the door. I still would run out to see the spirit, right? <laughs> but do you, do you see the unbelief? The unbelief of Peter and the unbelief of the church. We can actually go through the motions of prayer and never engage the belief. God could get Peter out of a prison, but Peter can't get himself into a church prayer meeting. Doesn't it just comfort the heck out of you? That God can actually give you the answer right in front of your faith, and your faith is so small you can't recognize the answer that's staring right at you. What is this? Because this is actually the problem. This is actually why the prayer team calls a prayer meeting and nobody shows up at the prayer team in our church. This is the problem, and we're going to talk about it. We have to face the fact that even in the most fervent prayer meetings, there is always going to be a spirit of doubt and unbelief because we are mere humans and we are not God. Why do we struggle with unbelief and doubt? When we have the theology, folks, I can give you 28 verses on prayer. Most of you probably have heard them. They're on Christian coffee cups by the dozens, right? But all the good theology cannot overcome unbelief. And we have an erosion of prayer. I can think of a ton of causes. I was just researching this week. The average Netflix subscriber, right as of December 2019, is spending two hours a day on Netflix. Half of that's probably finding what show you want to watch, okay? But <laughs> two hours a day. Social media, folks, is one hour and 57 minutes for the average American, okay? Now, I'm sure you've all said I'm not average, right? I'm just saying all those other people that have the problems with Netflix and social media, that's now four hours a day. On stuff that 50 years ago no Christian had to mess with. And we had houses of prayer. And we had prayer meetings. And we had personal prayer lives. See, I'm not afraid. Uh, I'm afraid we actually lack the desire in our hearts to see God. And that in this culture we have so much stuff. I mean, we can just pick up our phone and they'll deliver the food to our door and they'll deliver the entertainment to our door. And we don't have to get out of our pajamas now to get a college degree. We can order it all online. I was talking to a father this week and he's ticked because he sent his child to Grand Canyon University and she's there in the dorms and taking three online classes. And he's like, why am I doing this? We can get everything just delivered right to us. You know, we, we need an awakening. Because I, I believe that the cultural drift, we are overwhelmed by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we are consumed and fascinated by the natural, not the supernatural. So that when the supernatural comes in front of our faces, we can't even recognize it. What is at the core? We struggle with believing God. We do not believe what God says about himself. 
We've created a God in our image, and he is really small. A God who, yeah, yeah, he created the universe, and he created the solar system, but he can't open a prison door? He's my EMT God. I call him in emergencies maybe a couple times a year, and he shows up to kind of meet my health needs. He's my GPS God. I've I got most things figured out in this thing called life, When I need a little direction, I'll call him. Or my hitman God. Ever called the hitman God? I want to take somebody out, I call in the hit. I've done it, you've done it. You all act so pious. The Alexa God. I want some answers, I bark it out to him. Hey God, what, what about this? Or what's coming, the AI robot in our homes. Some of you will listen to my commands and serve me and serve my desires. Because we don't really believe in a God who does the big stuff. Especially for me. We don't really believe God can really change things. We don't believe what God says about himself. I don't think we believe what God says about prayer. It is now routine that when a school shooting happens in our country, the news lights up, Twitter lights up, and you have one group crying for legislation and another group doesn't know what to say. They make all these excuses of how, you know, criminals can get guns any way they want, you know, and then people start putting these words out there. They don't know what to say, so they say, thoughts and prayers. And now thoughts and prayers is being scorned. You know why? Because first of all, nobody believes you're actually doing that. When you say thoughts and prayers, I mean, churches aren't calling 24-hour prayer meetings after school shootings. So the thoughts and prayers is just as platitudes that we say, which actually just reveals the bankruptcy of our entire belief about prayer. And then we, you know, I think, honestly, we see inconsistent answers to it. I'm going to hearken you back to the beginning of the chapter. James dies. Peter lives. Okay, so maybe we prayed for James and we prayed for Peter and one got rescued and one got killed. Prayer doesn't really work, right? We see these inconsistent answers. So we come up with a philosophy about it. Essentially, we're deists. God wound the clock of everything and he's letting it go and nothing really changes. Or we're fatalists. Prayer doesn't really change anything. It's never going to work out. Or determinism, and there's theologies that back all this up. God has already determined everything. So why pray except just to change your own heart? So we don't believe what God says about prayer. We don't believe what God says about us. Because at our core, I think we have this thought that God doesn't really like us. I've asked that question to dozens of people. What did God think about you when you woke up this morning? And I've only ever had one person give me a positive answer. In the Christian church, okay? Well, you don't talk to somebody who you don't think likes you. We think, you know, God's too busy for us. He's a, he's a busy dad with seven billion kids tugging at his shirt sleeves, right? One more mouth, he's got to feed. I looked at my calendar this week. Okay? I have, this week I have 29 meetings, okay? I have community group tonight. I want to go to a book club tomorrow night, but I'm pondering if I should because I need to spend time with my kids. Tuesday night I have dinner with friends. Wednesday night we have family gathering our change agency program is interviewing candidates on Thursday, and, and oh yeah, Friday is Valentine's Day. You guys, you can thank me later, uh, and don't get out your phones now, okay? But, and I sat there, I looked at my schedule yesterday, and I was like, I don't have time for my children, right? I need, I need, to, I need to change some things this week. And we think God's that way. We think God's like Jason. You know, how do you do seven billion kids, Right? 
We fit God into our own little image. Or maybe God only answers prayer for certain people. That's those like really prayer warrior people. I happen to be in a community group with some women who are prayer warriors. And they just sometimes intimidate the heck out of me because they just they pray all the time. They talk about prayer all the time. They see answers to prayer all the time. And I'm just kind of sitting there, you know, you've been around those people. They've been instructive to me because they believe so much in prayer and they do it. But I say, those are the ones that are just a little closer to God than me. So what do we do with this, right? We're, we're, in, that, we're in that living room, in that gated community, crying with anxiety. And we, even though God may answer the prayer, don't see it. We struggle with this. Jesus gives us the story where this man has a son who's possessed with a demon. And he brings him to Jesus. And when he brings him to Jesus, the demon in the boy sees Jesus and it throws the boy into a convulsion and he's rolling around and there's foam coming out of his mouth. And I can't imagine a parent as you struggle with this. And Jesus said to the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And the dad says, he's been there like since he was a kid. And it's often this demon has thrown him into the fire or thrown him into the water to try to kill him. So if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus looks at him and goes, if you can... Did you just say, if you can? Reread it. If you can, Jesus, do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus goes, if you can? What do you mean, if you can? I'm God. Everything is possible for one who believes. Now, really, really this. It's not everything is possible through one who believes. Everything is possible for one who believes. In other words, there's nothing you can ask that I cannot do. Do you believe I can do it? Because obviously you don't because you said, if you can, right? If you can. And I think we come to God with our if you can prayers. And immediately the boy's dad says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. <laughs> that, that's not the same thing. <laughs> I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is the hokey pokey of Christian prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief, right? If it ain't landing with you folks, you're probably not praying at all, okay? Because I face that all the time, right? You think God might be bored with our low view of him? We're doing, God, if you can, help me pass this test. Like, if I can, come on. Somebody said one of the best things you can do to better your prayer life is not to study prayer, but you study God. Donald Barnhouse said this, prayer doesn't change anything. God does. So it's not the methodology. I mean, there's books on it, and there's chapters, and there's 18 different ways you can do it, but it's fundamentally about God. Even the Spirit, if we don't know what to say, promises in Romans 8, He'll like give words to our prayers with groanings that cannot be uttered, the Spirit will do that for us. What does God say about himself? He says, can I? I can do anything. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything? You know, God has never asked for help. Hey, the pickle jar. I can't do it. God's never asked for help. He wouldn't. There's no need, right? He's never encountered a hard thing. 
There is no burden God cannot lift. There is no door he cannot open. There is no prison he cannot break out of. There is no challenge he cannot overcome. You got a health problem. There is no sickness God cannot heal. There is no virus he cannot contain, folks. We look at the nations. There is no nominee God cannot elect. There is no president he cannot overthrow. There is no nation that can stop his influence. And there is no wall that can keep him out of your business, folks. With the economy, there's no economy he can't control. There's no stock market he can't crash. There is no bill he can't pay. There's no need he cannot meet. There's no job he cannot find. Can he? Yes, he can. For your enemies, there is no person who can stand in his way. There is no hater he cannot silence. There is no foe he cannot defeat. And I say to us, there is no sin he cannot forgive. There is no addiction he cannot heal. There is no lost sheep he will not pursue. And there is no sinner beyond his saving. And there is no grave that he cannot break open. And so, Christian, there is no prayer he does not hear. There is no tear he doesn't see, and there is no heartache he doesn't feel. He is our empathetic high priest, and yes, he can. One of the great struggles of being a pastor is you know the struggles of the sheep in your flock, and honestly, there's not much you can do about most of them. I'm a fixer guy, but most of the stuff that comes my way, I can't fix. But all I can do is point them to a God who actually can who actually can do it. That's all I can do, folks. That's all we as elders can do. I went to my office on Monday morning last week and I had an anonymous letter on my desk. And if you've been in this profession, you know what's in anonymous letters. You really brace yourself because you're about to hear it. And it's so strong, they are not going to put their name on it because they want to rip you hard. So I opened the letter, and this is what it said. Dear Jason, this letter is anonymous because I'm too embarrassed to ask you this in person. But I keep hearing all these guys saying they met their wife at Providence. And I'm just sitting over here thinking like, bleep, I've been coming here and I haven't met a nobody. So my question is, when are you going to do some event or Valentine's Day for all the singles ready to mingle? I love this line. I don't want to be like Ruth and crawl in some man's bed. <laughs> Come on, Jason, don't forget about us cool single people over here. <laughs> Folks, that's a scanned in copy. That's exactly. For, so I'm, I'm like, great, they're not ripping me a new one. And then I'm like, who put this on my desk? <laughs> they're probably not in education because they can't spell damn. Uh, it looks like it's probably a woman, and she's probably been coming to church here for a little while because I preached a sermon on Ruth and talked about crawling in some man's bed. Oh, I know, Scott. We got surveillance video, don't we? It had to happen between <laughs> noon and 5 p.m. because I saw it when I came in for the Super Bowl party. Or I can just look around the room and see who's got a really red face right now. Folks, you know what? I can't do that. I mean, I'll pay for your first month on Match.com. I'll pray with you. But fundamentally, God's got to do that thing. All I can do is point you to him and say, he did it for Courtney, maybe he can do it for you, right? <laughs> do you believe what God says about himself and what God says about prayer? 
Call to me, I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. John 15, 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire, shall be done for you. This is what God says about prayer. Fetch the angels. I will send them. And yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait, and sometimes he says yes, go pray. But then what does God say about you? Because this is the big deal. If he's just a busy dad with seven million kids tugging at his sleeve, where's the hope in that? 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord, almighty. God likes his kids. He likes them. He's kind of crazy about them. Isaiah 30, 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. You are sons and daughters of the house with the uh, privileges of inheritance. You can, you can go talk to your father. He wants to see you. And he wants to do above and beyond what you could ask or think. I live with a woman, and I have permission to share this story, who is a giver of gifts. If you work for her, you know what I mean. If you live with her, you know what I mean. If you're around her, you know what I mean. She loves to give gifts. We were coming up on Christmas time this year, and it was November. And I said, hey, babe, we should talk about our Christmas budget. And you know what? Uh, I don't need anything. You don't need anything. Our kids don't need anything. Uh, so let's just keep it really minimal this year. We're taking a vacation, blah, blah, blah. And then she goes like this. And when my wife bites her finger like that, it means, uh-oh, uh, I already did something naughty right? And she's like, I already ordered all their gifts. She's been dreaming about Christmas for months, and she keeps these lists on Amazon, like, with, and she just dreams about it. And I was like, well, what's the budget? I'm thinking this. And she goes, it's already more than that, you know? That's where mom does, too. And I'm like, ugh. And she's like, I just love to give gifts. And perhaps it's because uh, two of our kids you know, doing the take a year off, travel the world, and serve Jesus and sleep in a tent. And we can't send them anything. We can't send them a box. We can't send them a package. Nothing. We cannot send them gifts. And here's a mom who's watching half of her kids walk out the door. And she's like, I'm giving those kids gifts. My wife's a giver. I mean, last Saturday night, she wants to go to Hobby Lobby. I mean, nothing more than Hobby Lobby for me. <laughs> and she wants to get a gift for all of her team members, and we're going through aisles, and I'm trying to help her brainstorm about little things and painting projects they can do and all this stuff. And, you know, and I, I don't really enjoy that at all. I do enjoy watching her because she just loves to give gifts. She's a giver. So you can believe in the God that might look like Jason with 29 appointments and no time for his kids, or you can sit there and say there's a God like Jen who's a giver and who wants to give good gifts to their kids. This is your God in prayer. So believe. And you might say, well, yeah, but I'm too weak to do it. I think that's the great place to be. I think if we can be like that guy and say, I believe, help my unbelief, God heals the boy. <laughs> Let's just be honest with the fact that we struggle with this belief in prayer. That's where we lean on God. And by the way, this is where you lean on the church. This is why I want to say we do it together. The greatest thing about my community group is those three women who are prayer warriors encourage the heck out of me to be a better prayer, prayer person, right? I, like, I pray more when I'm around them. They encourage me. They lift me up. 
The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we actually speak together and it trains the desires of our hearts to be united in faith and hope and in love. It helps us stay united and be without division of the same mind. We stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith. We pray together. This survey, uh, could you advance the slide there? It's not working on mine. How do Christians most often pray? 82% silently by themselves, 13% audibly by themselves, 2% audibly with another person or group, 2% collectively with a church. We got to change that. Like, I wish we could actually flip it upside down. Literally. Yeah, have your personal prayer lives, but put 82% of your prayer time into praying together. Because this is what fetches the angel of God, and the church comes together in unity, and they see God deliver. Peter says, hey, he tells them the whole story about how God brought him out of prison. And then he says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. He departed and went to another place. What happens? He tells the story of God, because God did the impossible, and he gave freedom to the captives. This is our year of jubilee. Well, we'll give some money away. We'll go to the mountains for a retreat. We'll help some people pay back their restitution. We'll help forgive some debts that people have. But wouldn't it be great if what broke out was a spirit of prayer and we got tired? We we became free from an explainable God. We lived a life where God was no longer confined to our expectations and our image of him, but was truly God. The Bible says that elders are supposed to give themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. I used to think that was so that we could all get on our studies and open up our Bibles and write our sermons and pray and then come back and deliver it to the people. It is the ministry of the word and prayer. That our job as leaders is to actually foster a ministry of prayer in the church, the corporate prayer of the church. And if you think about it, it's so gospel. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take stuff that's not even some of our own problems And we're going to bring them before the throne of God. And we are going to intercede on behalf of the neighborhood or the schools or the people or the incarcerated or our children. And we're going to say, God, bless us. God, answer our prayers. This is actually what Jesus did on the cross, folks. He basically stood up there and he he became the mediator for us. He stood on behalf of people who couldn't even express their own sinfulness and their desires. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So we enact the gospel as we pray. So I have a dream that prayer would actually break out in the church. That it would actually be uncontrolled. That even when we come together, that I walk into the doors and people are already praying in groups, or that we come in and as the band starts to sing, people would come up and start praying uh, during the worship as the Spirit touches them. Or during fellowship time, people are gathering and praying. Or when the sermon's being spoken, that people would drop to their knees and start praying. Or at the end of the sermon, that the altar would be full as people are being ministered to in prayer. That's just during our corporate gathering. But could we take it outside the house? And can we go down to East Colfax and we could go past those hotels and those clubs and start praying for people? And can we go to the gentrifiers on Blake Street on Friday night when they're all drunk out of their minds coming out of the bars and start praying for people? And let's go charge hell with the squirt gun of prayer and see what God does. So I want to close. You know, Providence, we, part of our brand is if you're comfortable, we're doing something wrong. So I'm going to make everyone uncomfortable this morning. We're going to flip this graph as we close. I've listed 
eight things I prayed about this week in prep. And I'm going to ask you at the close here in just a minute to actually go to one of these sections in our auditorium that the Spirit speaks to you about and pray out loud to people in this congregation about this thing. And I want you to pray together to God, and then I want you to talk to each other about what God's doing in your heart. And let's fetch some angels down this morning. So I have there, uh, off to this corner here, is revival in our city. What is revival? That is the acceleration of the normal work of the Spirit of God, Jonathan Edwards said. I was reading this week about Count Zinzendorf, a wealthy man who had a big plot of land, and these refugees came uh, to his property, and they needed care, and he started a church, became the Moravian Movement. That little church developed into a hundred-year prayer meeting. That little small church about the size of Providence sent out 226 missionaries over 32 years. They sent more missionaries from that small church than the entire Protestant church from the Reformation to William Carey, 275 years. One church outdid them all because they had a hundred-year prayer meeting. We need revival in our city, an acceleration of the work of the Spirit of God. Or go out these doors and go pray by the prayer room. My, the dream would be that that prayer room would be staffed every single day and that we have a hundred and some neighbors in this building every day. Someone's there to pray with someone at all times. Or you say, you know what? I just need to surrender some things in my life. There's some things holding me back. That whole Netflix thing, that whole social media thing or whatever. Or man, I got some sin in my life. And I just feel like I'm not the vessel I need to be. You come up here and you just pray and you, you talk to other people and say, you confess your sin and say, I want to get rid of this stuff. And Josh, one of our elders, will be here. And if you need healing emotionally, spiritually, physically, we'll be here with the oil to anoint you. Or maybe you say, you know what? I'm, I am flummoxed this morning and I'm having a war in my spirit and I struggle with belief. You just stay right in the center. And people will come around you and pray. And we're going to pray, God, help their unbelief. This is a good thing to admit to each other. Or I'm going to ask some of you, we need unity in our city. And this tapestry here represents all the different countries and nationalities and ethnicities in our church. Come up and touch that cross. And let's pray for unity in our neighborhood, in our community. If we're going to see a prayer movement explode, we need leaders. Rich churches can pay a staff member to organize all this stuff. We don't have it. But if God's calling you to lead in the prayer movement, I want you to come over here and just say, God, here am I. Let me help lead this movement. I was thinking this week, who are the Annas and Simeons in this church? They weren't just there when Jesus was born. They were there their lives, praying. Or back here uh, by the cry room, we pray for the next generation. Those are our children, both in this church and in this neighborhood. Or even Aurora, right back by the sound booth over here. We talked about the vision of Aurora in a, in a second location, in a second a church plant with a cross-purpose chapter attached to it. And I heard at dinner this week some people were buzzing about it. And you know what? Aurora scares me to death. I'm telling you that right now. It's really easy to get comfortable and say, we got this thing figured out. We're okay. The last 10 years have been really hard. I have gray hair. I don't want to do this again. You know, Aurora, we need, we need an angel or two or a hundred. So that's what I want us to do. I want to say, let us let the year of Jubilee start a prayer movement in our church. The Bible says in Psalm 22.3, God inhabits the praises of his people. 
He inhabits them. So God is here. He will be in every single group, and he will do what he deems best. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask Kevin to come and just play softly. And I want you to move to one of those places. And I want you to do this. I want you to say this is what I want you to speak briefly. This is what God's saying in my heart. And then I want you to go to prayer. And I want you to pray out loud. And I really want you to do this. Don't close your eyes. Look at each other while you pray. And and look in each other's faces because this could be that little Moravian church where God does something in our midst. So as Kevin plays, you follow the Spirit's leading. Those of you who are equipped with ministry gifts and prayer gifts, I'd ask you to keep your eyes open a little bit, see where God might have you, where you could fill the gaps, and let's go to prayer as a congregation here this morning.